I speak to you in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Immediately after John baptized Jesus in the River Jordan, his earthly ministry began. And it began with a one-on-one -on -one confrontation, a battle with temptation. The battle was played out in the bleak desolation of the Arabian desert. The only ones looking on were creatures like sidewinder rattlesnakes slithering into the rocky crevices and skittering scorpions scrambling for the underbrush during the immense heat of the day. Throughout the day, Black vultures soared overhead in the clear blue skies, searching for where their next meal might be coming from. And by night, hyenas laughed and lions roared. Well, day after day, the blinding heat of the sun seemed only to intensify, and night after night, the cold east wind howled. Was this really to be Jesus' boot camp for ministry? Was this why, as Mark's gospel informs us, <clears throat> the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness? Couldn't there have been a simpler way to fulfill the Father's plan for the redemption of all mankind? <clears throat> but then one day, one day as his hunger pains grew ever more agonizing, this lone wanderer appeared in the desert. This stranger was affable and cordial, a fascinating conversationalist, yet there was, was something about him that aroused an, an immediate sense of caution. Detecting Jesus' severe hunger, he inquired, if you are the Son of God, then why not turn some of these stones into loaves of bread? Son of God, he called him. Could this be an angel? All alone out there in the desert, who else would have immediately recognized him as the Son of God? Jesus responds, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The stranger continued with wit and brilliance and some rather remarkable insights into the nature of mankind. He implied that Jesus could have a rather impressive future if only he would take his advice. While all the people of God were gathering to assemble for worship in the temple in Jerusalem, he escorted Jesus to the very pinnacle of that magnificent temple and attempted to coax him into letting himself down as though he were descending from the heavens like an angel into the midst of the crowd. He said, if you'll just do that, I guarantee you'll gain instant notoriety, fame, and success. But Jesus' attitude and his resolve remain firm. You can just hear his response. You must not tempt the Lord your God. This stranger persisted. He just wouldn't give up, would he? Come with me, he said. We'll climb to the top of that high mountain over there, and I'll show you great lands as far as the eye can see, even beyond the great sea, to Athens and Rome, to Spain and Egypt, to Babylonia and to the far north country. I'll give you all of these kingdoms under one condition. You just fall down 
and worship me. Ah, now comes the reveal. The awareness of who this enticing wanderer really was. This stranger was none other than the prince of all evil. The tempter par excellence, Lucifer himself. Jesus now takes full command of the situation and sends this evil one packing with these sharp words, Be gone with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And with that swift rebuke, the devil is on the run, still on the run, on the loose, you might say, and God's holy angels come and minister to Jesus. Jesus had withstood a great test. As a man, Jesus was not immune from temptation. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews tells us that he experienced every temptation that we face, yet without sinning. Like all of us, he was just as susceptible to temptation as we are, and he clearly recognized exactly who his adversary was. St. Peter writes, be sober, be watchful, for your adversary, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It had been an earth-shattering confrontation. It was a warlike clash between these two mighty titans. For this great test, that of confronting the very Son of God, Satan had come in person. He didn't send a novice. He didn't send an understudy like Wormwood, that junior tempter that C.S. Lewis writes about in his book, The Screwdape Letters. No, it had to be a personal encounter with an experienced professional, the master of temptation himself. We just heard the story about how this malevolent one, this evil one, had completely ruined, and I mean ruined, the first Adam and Eve. His temptations succeeded with them, but they failed completely with the second Adam. The second Adam was to go from the wilderness into the gardens and into the homes and into the neighborhoods and into the workplaces of humankind. The first Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden into the wilderness. The Son of God had been victorious in his battle against Satan, and thus he was revealed as the Redeemer of the world. Well, so that we might get a better understanding of some of the dynamics of temptation in our own lives, I'd like for us to explore three questions. How does temptation work? When does temptation come? And how can we resist temptation when it does come? How does temptation work? When do temptations come? How can we resist temptations when they do come our way. It's my sense that there are many people today who mistakenly believe that the devil is in equal power with God. I want to be perfectly clear that that assumption is absolutely false. He's not an equal with God because he's one of God's creations. He's an angel. 
a rebellious one, a fallen one at that, and a very powerful one indeed. However, not so powerful that he can make us do things that we don't want to do. The truth of the matter is that the devil doesn't have any power over us whatsoever if we don't allow him to have that power. From his temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden to his temptation of Jesus out in the wilderness, we're able to get a pretty good idea as to just how he plies his temptations in our lives and learn how we can defeat and conquer those temptations whenever they do come knocking on our door. And they will come. One of the things we need to come to grips with is the fact that temptation always invites us to take something that is good and pervert it. Something that's good and pervert it. Every temptation offers us something that is intrinsically good, whether it be food or comfort, pleasure or enjoyment, wealth or security, knowledge, power, success. Where nothing good is offered, no temptation exists. The other thing we must recognize is that temptation is not sin, but it is the pathway that leads us into sin. For example, because I don't like anchovies, I can't be tempted to eat them. Never going to touch one. Temptations to eat only occur when what I want to eat is desirable, takes, tastes good, or I'm starving. If eating pizza were a sin, then most everyone would be tempted to eat it. And if God said, thou shalt not eat pizza, we'd try to find a way around the prohibition. We'd probably use a different recipe and call it something like bazoli or some other word so that we could indulge ourselves in that which we enjoy. You see, there's always something desirable and attractive in every single temptation. If there were no attraction, we wouldn't be tempted by it, would we? And here's the key point I want to make about how temptation works. <clears throat> and by the way, this is exactly, exactly how the devil operates. He tempts us to give in to the desire to have something that God forbids us to have. And then he places the opportunity to have it smack dab in front of us. When the two of those meet, desire and opportunity that is, when we take the bait by going with our desire and then acting upon it whenever the opportunity arises, that's exactly where we're going to fall into sin. Just look at how Satan tempted Adam and Eve. He used good things, didn't he? A fruit that looked ever so desirable to eat, but one that God had forbidden them to eat. They were told that if they ate it, they would possess the same knowledge that God possessed, that they would be like God. Well, that was a lie. What's more, the serpent tempted them with the false assumption that they could obtain the power to live forever. Yet another lie. He'd convinced them to ignore God's words that if they ate of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, they would surely die. You won't die, he said to them. Yet another lie. 
We have to remember, of course, that one of the names, one of the many names for the devil, Satan, in Scripture is Beelzebub, the meaning of which is the author of lies. The author of lies. And just how did Satan tempt Jesus? Well, he tempted him with good, desirable things as well, such as food to quench his hunger, knowledge that the angels would be the, there to catch him if he were to leap off the pinnacle of the temple, and power to obtain all the kingdoms of the world for himself. All three of these temptations were ways that Satan was attempting to make Jesus believe that he deserved better than that which God was giving him, or by getting him to take the easy way out, or by enticing him to circumvent his God-ordained mission, his mission to take the sins of the whole world upon himself, into himself, and to go to the cross to suffer and to die so that the price necessary to be paid for our release from sin and for our forgiveness might be fully satisfied. That is, might be purchased and paid for. How? With his own precious blood. Each and every time Jesus said no to Satan, he was saying yes to the cross. And yes to the fulfillment of his heavenly Father's earthly mission for him, to die on that cross to take away the sins of the world your sins and mine. The second question we want to look at is, when do temptations come? I wonder, did you happen to notice the devil's timing in all of this? It's pretty uncanny when you think of it. That is, when he first approached Jesus in the wilderness. His temptations came when Jesus was at his most vulnerable. They came right at the end of his 40-day period of fasting. Can you imagine just how hungry Jesus must have been? Now, fasting doesn't mean that you wouldn't have any food whatsoever or water. You couldn't live without water for 40 days. Maybe he had some wild locusts like John the Baptist ate. I don't know. But I can only imagine what it would be like if I were to begin fasting, stop eating on Ash Wednesday, and not eat again until Palm Sunday 40 days later. I can't even imagine how famished I'd be. After 40 days, Jesus was not only famished, I believe he was lonely and weak and at the point of sheer and utter exhaustion. A little companionship and some fresh-baked bread sounded pretty good about that time. When we find ourselves alone, lonely, weak, tired, run down, worn out, and exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, and yes, even spiritually, it's then that we become the most vulnerable to temptation and are exceedingly prone to fall headlong into sin. King David is a perfect example of this, isn't it? It's usually at times like these when we're worn out and tired and lonely, when we manage to get ourselves into situations in life that are conducive to sinning. And that was the case with David. When his army was off to war, he found himself all alone, 
Of course, he was basking in the luxury of comfort in his royal palace. Nevertheless, he was no doubt bored and lonely with nothing to do in his spare time except to practice the harp. And it was then, it was then that he spied this stunningly beautiful woman, Bathsheba, the wife of one of his best soldiers, bathing naked on a nearby rooftop. And he just had to have her. As a result, just look at the avalanche of catastrophes that cascaded down from there in his life. The story of David teaches us that if you don't want to be tempted to commit adultery, then don't place yourself in any compromising situations. And if you should ever have the desire and the opportunity and they meet to engage in any kind of inappropriate emotional or physical attachment with someone other than your own wife, run away from it as fast as you can. The same could be said for being tempted to consume excess alcohol or to use illegal drugs. Stay away from the people and the places where that occurs. And if you don't want to be tempted to lust after another person, avoid those places and websites where you just know you'll be tempted to objectify another human being. And if you want to overcome covetousness, that of desiring what other people possess, then don't be constantly comparing yourself with what you have or don't have with what they have. Simply be thankful. Say a prayer to God, a prayer of thanksgiving, for giving you all the many blessings you already have. And if you don't wish to engage and be tempted to engage in gossip, or become judgmental or critical of other people, don't allow your conversations to degenerate to that extent. Learn to control what you say. Well, the list could go on and on, couldn't it? I'm not going to go through all ten of the commandments, but I think I've hit on a few of them. A good friend of mine once offered this rather insightful paraphrase of one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. It goes like this. Lead me not into temptation. I can always seem to find it all by myself. <laughs> the third question I want us to consider this morning is this. How can we resist temptation when it comes our way? Did you notice how Jesus responded to each one of the devil's temptations? He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture. God's Word had been written upon his heart from the beginning of time because he was, after all, true God of true God. He was the very Word of God himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Our primary defense against temptation is the Word of God. As Christ's followers, we need to be in God's Word every day, not just pulling the Bible off the shelf and dusting it off in case of an emergency. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul described the armor of God that Christians need to be putting on so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes, he calls them. All but one of these items, Paul lists, 
as armor is of a defensive nature. Paul tells us that the only offensive weapon in our entire arsenal is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. I like what Dr. Riken said in his presentation at the Mere Anglicanism Conference in January. He said, memorize the Word. Have you ever thought about doing that? Memorize the Word of God so that you'll be prepared at all times to go into battle with the devil. The Apostle James writes, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When you submit yourself to God, he will give you the power, the strength, and the ability to resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you every time. Resist the devil with Scripture. When Satan saw that he could not defeat Jesus, what did he do? He fled. He ran away. Know this. The devil absolutely hates it when we quote Scripture. And invariably, when we do, he'll flee from us as fast as he can every single time. I find St. Paul's words from 1 Corinthians particularly encouraging when he gives us this wise counsel about how we should deal with temptation. He says, No temptation has ever overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Remember that it's when desire and opportunity meet that we fall, and we fall hard. So when you feel the desire to do something that you know God has forbidden you to do, ask God to remove what? The opportunity. And when you discover that you have the opportunity to do something that God forbids you to do, ask God to do what? Take away the desire. God will always provide you with an escape route. Be on the lookout for it and take it whenever he offers it. Martin Luther once said, I cannot prevent birds from flying over my head, but I can stop them from building a nest in my hair. Are you allowing any temptations in your life right now to settle into your thoughts, into your actions, into your behavior, into your relationships, and into your life. Well, if you are, then during these 40 days of Lent, begin to work on destroying them before they begin to build a nest in your mind, in your heart, and in your very life. When you and I do succumb to Satan's temptations, and to be sure, we will, after all, past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. Jesus is there. Jesus is there always ready to have mercy on us, to grant us his grace, and to offer and administer to us his gift of forgiveness. For that is the very reason he came into this world, to save all of us who have fallen 
into the devil's snares, into his traps, bought his lies, and succumbed to his temptations. In other words, when we've done those things which we ought not to have done, and not done those things which we ought to have done. St. Paul reminds us of that in Romans chapter 7, verse 19, where he says, the good that I want to do, I do not do. And the evil that I don't want to do is exactly what I do. He continues by saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Body of death because the wages of sin is death. He concludes on a very positive note, though. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over sin. The victory over death. And yes, even the victory over the power of the devil. Here again, what the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. You see, Jesus truly does understand. He knows our weaknesses. He empathizes with us in those times of weakness because out there, out there in the bleakness of the Arabian desert, he prevailed. He passed the test. He resisted temptation. And with the help that he promised to give us every day, each and every day of our lives, we too will be able to pass the test by resisting temptation. May God grant that for Jesus' sake. Amen.